0: So please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Yeah? We need a little bit more of an enthusiastic applause. How is everyone? All right, thank you. That was... Impressive, or impressive, as Bader says. Um, Thank you for coming. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel, and I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing this for, uh, well, the series itself has been going strong since the late 90s. I've been co-hosting here with Ellen for about nine years. Ellen's been doing it for about 12. Uh, It's always been free. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft. Tip your bartenders for working hard. And uh, keep coming back to support the series. Buy some books. Yes, we have uh, Word Bookstore. Uh, Word uh, is in the back, by the door. And they have books for sale. They have Holly, two of Holly Black's books. They have The Coldest Girl in Cold Town and The Darkest Part of the Forest. So, And then the, from Fran Wild, they have... Cloudbound and Updraft. So they don't have very many copies, so I advise that uh, after the first reading, friendly reading first, that you go buy a copy, bring them up, get them signed uh, before they sell out. Um, before we begin with our first reader, just a brief announcement of the upcoming readers. Next month, February 15th, Michael Sisko and Nicholas Kaufman. Hope you can join us for that. March 15th, Nova Rensuma and Kini Ibura Salam. April 19th, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. Yes! May 17th, Sam J. Miller and E. C. Myers. Woo-hoo! June 21st, Katherine M. Valente and Sonny Moraine. Woo-hoo! July 19th, and Karen Hewler and our favorite guest. Thank you. Uh, August 16th, Rajan Khanna, also reading with TBA. She gets around. Chris Sharp, September 20th. So uh, we'll hope you'll uh, join us for a a really great lineup this year. Now on to our first reader. Do we have any other announcements before I... I think that's it. Our first reader is Fran Wilde. Fran writes science fiction and fantasy. Her debut novel, Updraft, won the Andre Norton Award and the Compton Crook Award, and was a Nebula nominee. Cloudbound, the second book in the Bone Universe series, came out in September 2016, and Horizon, which I'm told she'll be reading from tonight, you are the first people in all the universe to hear, from, hear it publicly read, uh, will appear in fall 2017. Her novella, The Jewel and Her Lapidary, was published by tour.com in May 2016, Fran short fiction has appeared in Asimov's uncanny magazine Tor.com and beneath ceaseless skies. Here's Fran Wilde. <laughs>
2: Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Is that good? Okay. Um, I'm not, I was going to make a joke, but I'm going to not make it because it's not very funny. Um, Let us be the judges. (laughs) No, trust me. Um, So before I begin, I'd like to thank Ellen and Matt and everyone here at KGB Bar, including the bartenders, as well as Word Bookstore. I'd especially like to thank my co-reader, Holly Black. Amazing to be reading with her. I've been among the KGB audience for several years now, and last year, I read here for the very first time. Last year, technically a year and a half ago now, but at the time I was writing that intro, it was actually a year. Because I was very excited and wrote this a little early. I'm super... (laughs) I know I know I'm excited to be back though I love sitting in the audience as much as standing behind the podium so thank you all very much for having me here the bone universe cycle and this is where the joke comes in because I have learned that there is AO3 fanfic and if you name something the bone universe then you're going to get fanfic apparently (laughs) thank you Terry for letting me know the bone universe cycle began with updraft my first novel It's a novel about a young woman in a city of living bone that rises above the clouds. It's a book about voice, who speaks, who gets to be heard. Cloudbound, the second novel, follows a young man learning how to become a leader, although not always very well. And Horizon is the third book, which comes out this September. You can totally pre-order it now. (laughs) And is possibly the most complex. Horizon is about community. And towards that end, there are actually three narrators, which will probably get me in a lot of trouble. If you'll bear with me, you're going to hear from one of those narrators tonight, because for the first time anywhere, as you heard, I'm going to be reading from Horizon. I have never done this before, so this is an act of daring do brought to you personally by me to KGB bar. When I've talked about the series in the past, I have sometimes said it's a bit like Victor Hugo meets Italo Calvino with squid. But as we prepare to launch Horizon, I'd like these books to be about something more. I can't really say they're about hope because Rogue One already did that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll say they're about the next closest thing. These books are about creating a net and catching those we love up in it and carrying all of us forward if we can. And also about squid. (laughs) I've removed as many spoilers as possible, and there's not much risk of anyone being eaten tonight. Chapter one. Horizon. Each night our city dreamed of danger and cried out for help I could not give. Wind rippled between towers flowing along tense borders. Since all moons, fighting had spread. Tower versus tower, quadrant against quadrant, black wings against black wings, towers and quadrants. Even the trade crusts grew dangerous between northwest and southeast near the cracked spire and around the city's edges. This night, I joined Mondarath's tower guard. I flew the city's disturbed winds, looking for danger. As tower leader, it was my duty to keep Mondarath safe. But I was more than a leader. I was a nightwing. In the dark, I clicked my tongue fast against the roof of my mouth, echoing. The hard-won singer skill learned when I was a fledge revealed more flyers riding the dark gusts than usual. I whistled my wing signs, Magister, Counselor, Nearby, Laurie, one of Mondarath's best guards, whistled back, all clear. On your wings, McCall, she whispered. Silence, I whistled in reply. Stick to wing signs. We didn't know where or when the black wings from the southwest would try to attack next, but I was positive they were out there, flying the darkness too. Evidence of their visits accumulated along our borders, mysterious fires, cut bridges, as if they wanted us isolated and afraid. Now, on the shortest night before all suns, my guards and I flew the darkness, echoing, trying to keep the bridges safe and the city whole. We kept alert for skymouths too, for bone eaters that had been seen near the spire, and for our friends who had disappeared into the clouds. So many lost, so much to guard against, so much to protect, especially this night, because tomorrow was a market day. Mondarath and the surrounding towers desperately needed supplies. We needed to connect and trade. Last all moons, after the Council fell from the sky, battles roiled the South, and there'd been few markets since. Once the Black Wings took the South, there had been fewer markets still. It was too risky. Now we had to face that risk. When I echoed again, I sensed the Northwest Towers rising around me. Manderas' broad tiers just below, then Densira's slim, graceful form to the east. Vit was a sturdy monolith south of us, and Wira a wisp in the distance. My echoing, required for the night flying, and the sharp hearing that came with training as a singer-nightwing long ago brought the city's unrest to my ears all the time. Nights like these were the worst. Nightmares twisted the wind around distant towers, rising pale and tall in the darkness. Dreams and hunger teased whimpers from children sleeping close together, even at Mondreth. Fear gave a hitch and a stutter to my partner's breathing. I tipped my left pinion and turned back toward my tower, completing my circuit of the upper tiers. Time to venture lower, then return to my own bed before my partner, Sidra, discovered I was gone once again. The moonset began to silver the cloud top below our tower, I sensed a wingset approaching fast and low, a flyer trying to circle Mondarath unseen, headed for the tower's far side. There, got you. Whistling wing codes in rapid order, defend, low tower, attacker, I rallied the guards who flew with me. We dove in a knife formation, chasing the black wing from the shadows. I'm friendly, a young voice said, high pitched and very frightened. I'm alone. A lie, I answered. My guards dropped their net, thick with the smell of muzz over the flyer's dark wings. Black wings are never alone. Find this one. As the stars faded in the sky, the flyer ceased struggling. Mondarath no longer left anything to chance. My guards drew the muzz laden ropes closed around the black wing. Wary and searching the horizon for more attackers, I circled near a low tower balcony, echoing. I found no more wings in the sky. Whom do you fly for? I shook the Blackwing awake. In the dark, they might not see my marks, nor know I was a counselor, but they knew they'd been caught. Laurie lit an oil lamp and held the fretworked bones so that light glared in our captive's eyes. She handed me a skein of Law's marks. The Blackwing squinted and fended me off with a hand. I fly for no one now. I came for help. I saw his face, his eyes wide with fear. Good. Our guards continued to search the night for more Black Wings, to guard the crowded tiers filled with family and refugees above us. Meanwhile, the setting's moon outlined everything in silver. The balcony, Laurie's watchful pose, the net draped over the prisoner, the prisoner's worn Black set. Laurie snorted, you should have come in daylight. The young Black wing shook his head. I've told the quadrant leader I'd go, that I'd do what he wanted tonight. He's a powerful Blackwing, but I wanted to leave too. I needed to leave. There's too much infighting. He sounded miserable. I would too in his position. A second guard stepped closer, three of us surrounding the boy, six more flying close formation just beyond the tier. What should we do with you? So many laws broken. I shook the laws markers so they clattered. Blackwings don't hesitate to drop a lawsbreaker into the clouds, they don't care which tower's laws markers you're wearing either. The Black Wings were not forgiving of laws breakers. Please, the boys whispered. He knelt on the bone tier beneath the net. Please, my aunts are in danger. Black Wings fight amongst themselves. I had nothing to eat. I had to fly. I knelt closer. What's your name? The boy smelled of sweat and muzz, but something rang true in his words. His eyes were hollows. His shoulders shook. What did the Black Wing leader ask of you? My name's Yuri, he whispered, and the quadrant leader told me it was important to start as many fires as I could to disrupt the markets. I put the law's markers in my shatch- satchel and pulled out a strip of dried goose meat, handed this to Yuri. Bring him water, keep him bound. My guards did as I asked. Yuri chewed on the dried goose as if it was the first food he'd tasted in a long time. The Black Wings had sent a boy to his death, tower against tower. They'd asked him to do the unspeakable, alone, And they hadn't even fed him. They probably thought a feeling of importance was food enough. I'd have deserted them, too. You might have a better chance here with us, Yuri. I kept my voice soothing, as I would with Fledges. I wanted him to tell me everything. You can do a very important thing for the city now. Tell me, are there more of you? Yuri nodded, eyes wide. Six black wings for your tower coming from the north before dawn. Can read a little bit more? OK. Put five more guards in the air, I ordered. Tell the others to come here. We had 20 guards, counting myself. I lifted the net and took Yuri's wings. Make any disturbance, and you will not be with us long, I warned. The fear in his brown eyes gave me pause. He was barely older than some of my flight students, and I didn't like scaring fledges. But these were difficult times. The young man, infiltrator or traitor, nodded his understanding. He curled up in his robe, bound and miserable. The overnight breeze shifted to a pre dawn gust. The best traders had always flown around the city's edges in the early morning when the winds were fastest. Today's wind snapped Monderath's makeshift market banners gleefully and buffeted the few birds we had remaining. When the wind carried on its back a taint, familiar and dreaded. Smoke. I sniffed again. The scent was gone. Had I imagined it? Misjudged a morning cook fire? I envied those who could still sleep in the tears above, even restlessly. There would be no sleep for me now. I pulled a bone marker from my pocket and scratched a message. Take this to Amrath, then Varu, I told the nearest guard. Warn them of the danger. Tell them every remaining guard goes up in the air now, even those still in training. We would make our stand. Our market wouldn't be like the big all-sun markets of old, but it would be a market nonetheless. Once it succeeded, we could hold more, better markets. Our bell- bellies would fill with different foods, our ears with news from other towers, our nightmares might ease. We would become a community again, no longer isolated, no longer hungry. But if we failed, there wasn't much farther to fall. In the air beyond the balcony, a shadow moved past, its swift passage catching my eye. Another black wing? No, a large griffin diving through the air, a wild kavik swooping around it, screeching. Watching the spectacle, I tried not to see the birds as an omen. Singers had cataloged omens, used them to weigh their actions in order to hold the city together. But though I was spire-born, I'd left long ago to become a tower magister and then a counselor, and it had been many all sons since I'd followed their ways. Now with the spire ruined, sorry, that's a little bit of a spoiler, and the singers disgraced, The city had become a barbed collection of doubts and distrust. The guards I'd summoned joined us on the low tier. I separated six out, including Laurie. We'll fly north and east beyond the city's edge. The wind was quickest from that direction. While Yuri might be lying, we would soon find out. We will find the attackers before they can surprise us. At the balcony's edge, facing away from the city's towers, I tightened my wing straps. Sidra would be furious when she woke. She'd tell me I needed to be a leader now, not a hero. Leaders did what was needed. I leapt, and my guards followed me, echoing back into the night sky. When we were well east of Mondarath and the city's outer edge, I spotted a tight formation of black wings below us, flying against the silvered clouds. They'd begun their turn. We would not have the advantage of surprise for much longer. Hawk, I whistled, and my guards shifted into the formation, fast and sure. As we approached, the black wings seemed to fold in on themselves. One flyer looped around to overtake another. I saw the gleam of a knife in the moonlight. Their formation burst apart as the second flyer spun defensively and the other force tried to stay out of the way. A weakness, Laurie whistled, using an old sign for wing break. Indeed, there was. Hold formation until we break them up. Laurie with me. I touched my wings and dove hard, an old wing fighting trick that had sent me tearing between the two flyers just as the attacker turned, preparing to slice his victim's foot sling. My dive disrupted the gust they rode and sent the attacker into a tumbling spin. His knife flew from his fingers. The other black wing dodged and then circled back. The air erupted with cries as Larry engaged the black wings who tried to stay out of the fight. My guards dove quickly to help her. Six pairs of green and blue wings spun about and dove among four pairs of black, then three. With a scream, a defeated black wing disappeared into the clouds. The black wing, who nearly had their foot sling cut, rose on a gust. They dove, shouting right past me. They came close enough that I could hear the black edge of a wing flap on the wind. I saw the fighter's face, dark skin, darker tattoos around her eyes. She flew straight at her attacker, anger overtaking fear. Locking my wings, I joined her in pursuit. No matter who lost, it would be one less blackwing to fight later. I pulled a glass-toothed knife and slatched at the attacker's black silk wings. While he focused on dodging me, the woman on his tail destroyed his foot sling; The silk parted with a ripping sound, and the attacker dropped fast. Now there were only three blackwings gliding the wind beyond the city, seven of us still from Mondarath. The tattooed blackwing whistled to her remaining companions, and they dove for the clouds. Moments later, We saw them skimming the brightening mist, taking a fast circuit of the city back to the southwest. Pursue, Laurie whistled. Back to Mondrath, I said, to guard the tower and the market. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Fran. Anyway, buy books. You can we're gonna take about a 10 minute break, have a drink, buy the books, have the writers, the readers sign them and uh, come back and back. And welcome anyway. Hello. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hello everybody. We're gonna start. Welcome back. Welcome back.
2: <laughs>
3: Hi there. <laughs> I'm posing for shitty pictures that I, that I can delete, yeah I'll bet it is <laughs> Anyway, thank you uh, Welcome back everybody There are a few more books left Only by Fran, Fran's books There are still about three what? books left Yeah I know So, so you better make sure that, that You have to make sure that, that word doesn't take any home So you have to buy those books I don't. I think there's one, in, one book And two of the other Anyway Our next reader is Holly Black Who is a writer of best-selling contemporary dark fantasy? Some of her titles include *The Spiderwick Chronicles* with Tony DiTerlizzi, *The Modern Fairy Tale Series*, *The Curse Workers Series*, *Doll Bones*, *The Coldest Girl in Cold Town*, *The Magisterium Series* with Cassandra Clare, and *The Darkest Part of the Forest*. She's been a finalist for an Eisner Award, and she's finished with her graphic novels. which means she's going to write other things now, (laughs) as she mentioned. And the recipient of the Andre Norton Award, the Mythopoeic Award, and a Newberry Honor. Please welcome Holly Black. Thank you.
4: Uh, Okay, I should not look? Okay right, I'm
3: not
4: Hi. Um, thank you. Thank you, um, Ellen and Matt, for having me back to KGB. Um, I'd say thank you to Fran, but I'm not feeling thankful because you're a tough act to follow. Oh. <laughs> um, I've been writing fairy books for a long time, but this fairy book is different. It's different because it's actually set... It's the first book I've I've written set primarily in fairy, which forced me to make a lot of difficult kind of world-building decisions that I had been avoiding up until this time. Um, it's, uh, the title's Cruel Prince, it's the first in a trilogy, and uh, it comes out <laughs> a year from today. <laughs> from who? From Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Um, <clears throat> on a drowsy Sunday afternoon, A man in a long, dark coat hesitated in front of a house on a tree-lined street. He hadn't parked a car, nor had he come by taxi. No neighbor had seen him strolling along the sidewalk. He simply appeared, as if stepping between one shadow and the next. The man walked to the door and lifted his fist to knock. Inside the house, Jude sat on the living room rug and ate fish sticks, soggy from the microwave and dragged through a sludge of ketchup. Her twin sister, Taryn, napped on the couch, curled around a blanket, thumb in her fruit punch-stained mouth. And on the other end of the room, I mean, sorry, on, other, on the other end of the sofa, their older sister, Vivian, stared at the television screen, her eerie, split-pupiled gaze fixed on the cartoon mouse as it ran from the cartoon cat. She laughed when it seemed as if the mouse was about to get eaten. Vivian was different from other big sisters, But since seven-year-old Jude and Taryn were identical with the same shaggy brown hair and heart-shaped faces, they were different too. Vivi's eyes and the lightly furred points of her ears were, to Jude, not so much more strange than being the mirror version of another person. And if sometimes she noticed the way the neighborhood kids avoided Vivi, or the way their parents talked about her in low, worried voices, Jude didn't think it was anything important. Grown-ups were always worried, always whispering. Taryn yawned and stretched, pressing her cheek against Vivi's knee. Lawnmower engines whirred and children splashed in backyard pools. Dad was in the outbuilding where he had a forge. Mom was in the kitchen cooking hamburgers. Everything was boring. Everything was fine. When the knock came, Jude hopped up to answer it. She hoped it might be one of the girls from across the street wanting to play video games or inviting her for an after dinner swim. The tall man stood on their mat glaring down at her. He wore a brown leather duster despite the heat. His shoes were shod with silver, and they rang hollowly as he stepped over the threshold. Jude looked up into his shadowed face and shivered. Mom, she yelled. Mom, someone's here. Her mother came from the kitchen, wiping her wet hands on her jeans. When she saw the man, she went pale. Go to your room, she told Jude in a scary voice. Now. Now. Whose child is that? The man asked, pointing at her. His voice was oddly accented. Yours? His? No one's. Mom didn't even look in Jude's direction. She's no one's child. That wasn't right. Jude and Taryn looked just like their dad. Everyone said so. She took a few steps toward the stairs, but didn't want to be alone in her room. Vivi, Jude thought. Vivi will know who the tall man is. Vivi will know what to do. But Jude couldn't seem to make herself move any farther. I've seen many impossible things, the man said. I have seen the acorn before the oak. I have seen the spark before the flame. But never have I seen such as this, a dead woman living, a child born from nothing. Mom seemed at a loss for words. Her body was vibrating with tension. Jude wanted to take her hand and squeeze it, but she didn't dare. "'I doubted Balakin when he told me I'd find you here,' said the man, his voice softening. "'The bones of an earthly woman and her unborn child in the burnt remains of my estate were convincing. "'Do you know what it is to return from battle, to find your wife dead, your only heir with her, "'to find your life reduced to ash?' "'Mom shook her head, not as if she was answering him, but as though she was trying to shake off the words.' He took a step toward her and she took a step back. There was something wrong with the tall man's leg. He moved stiffly as though it hurt him. The light was different in the entry hall and you could see the odd green tint of his skin and the way his lower teeth seemed too large for his mouth. She was able to see that his eyes were like Vivi's. I was never gonna be happy with you, mom told him. Your world isn't for people like me. The tall man regarded her for a long moment You made vows, he said, finally. She lifted her chin, and then I renounced them. His gaze went to Jude, and his expression hardened. What is a promise from a mortal wife worth? I suppose I have my answer. Mom turned, clearly surprised to see Jude still there. At her mother's look, Jude dashed into the living room. Taryn was still sleeping. The television was still on. Vivian looked up with half-lidded cat eyes. "'Who's at the door?' she asked, I heard arguing. "'A scary man,' Jude told her, out of breath. "'Even though she'd barely run at all, "'her heart was pounding. "'We're supposed to go upstairs.' "'She didn't care that Mom had told only her to go upstairs. "'She wasn't going by herself.' "'With a sigh, Vivi unfolded from the couch "'and shook Taryn awake. "'Drowsily, Jude's twin followed them into the hallway. "'As they started toward the carpet-covered steps,' Jude saw her father come in from the back garden. He held an ax in his hand, forged to be a near replica of one he'd studied in a museum in Iceland. It wasn't weird to see dad with an ax. He and his friends were into old weapons and would spend lots of time talking about material culture and sketching ideas for fantastical blades. What was odd was the way he held the weapon as if he were going to. Her father swung the ax toward the tall man. He had never raised a hand to discipline Jude or her sisters, even when they got in big trouble. He wouldn't hurt anyone, he just wouldn't. And yet, and yet, the axe went past the tall man, biting into the wood trim of the door. Taryn made an odd, high, keening noise and slapped her palms over her mouth. The tall man drew a curved blade from beneath his leather coat, a sword, like from Storybook. Dad was trying to pull the axe free from the doorframe when the man plunged the sword into Dad's stomach, pushing it upward. There was a sound, like mm. a stick snapping, and an animal cry. Dad fell to the vestibule carpet, the one Mom always yelled about when they tracked mud on it, the rug that was turning red. Mom screamed, Jude screamed, Tarned. and Vivi screamed. Everyone seemed to be screaming except the tall man. Come here, he said, looking directly at Vivi. You you monster, her mother shouted, moving toward the kitchen. He's dead. Do not run from me, the man told her. Not after what you've done. If you run again, I swear I... But she did run. She was almost around the corner when his blade struck her in the back. She crumbled to the linoleum, falling arms knocking magnets off the fridge. The smell of fresh blood was heavy in the air like wet, hot metal like those scrubbing pads Mom used to clean the frying pan when stuff was really stuck on. Jude ran at the man, slamming her fists against his chest, kicking at his legs. She wasn't even scared. She wasn't sure she felt anything at all. The man paid Jude no mind. For a long moment, he just stood there as though he couldn't quite believe what he'd done, as though he wished he could take back the last five minutes. Then he sank to one knee and caught hold of Jude's shoulders. He pinned her arms to her sides so she couldn't hit him anymore, but he wasn't even looking at her. His gaze was on Vivian. You were stolen from me, he told her. I've come to take you to your true home in Elfheim, beneath the hill. There you will be rich beyond measure. There you will be with your own kind. No, Vivi told him in her somber little voice. I'm never going anywhere with you. I'm your father, he told her, his voice harsh, rising like the crack of a lash. You are my heir and my blood, and you will obey me, and this is in all things. She didn't move, but her jaw set. You're not her father, Jude shouted at the man. Even though he and Vivi had the same eyes, she wouldn't let herself believe it. His grip tightened on her shoulders, and she made a little squeezed, squeaking sound, but stared up defiantly. She won plenty of staring contests. He looked away first, turning to watch Taryn on her knees, shaking Mom while she sobbed, as though she was trying to wake her up. Mom didn't move. Mom and Dad were dead. They were never going to move again. I hate you, Vivian Vivian proclaimed to the tall man with a viciousness that Jude was glad of. I will always hate you. I vow it. The man's stony expression didn't change. Nonetheless, you will come with me. Ready these little humans. Pack light. We ride before dark. Vivian's chin came up. Leave them alone. If you have to, take me, but not them. He stared at Vivi and then snorted, "'You'd protect your sisters from me, would you? "'Tell me then, where would you have them go?' "'Vivi didn't answer. "'They had no grandparents, no living family at all, "'at least none they knew. "'He looked at Jude again, "'released her shoulders and rose to his feet. "'They are the progeny of my wife "'and thus my responsibility. "'I may be cruel, a monster, and a murderer, "'but I do not shirk my responsibilities. "'Nor should you shirk yours as the eldest.' Years later, when Jude told herself the story of what happened, she couldn't recall the part where they packed. Shock seemed to have erased that hour entirely. Somehow, Vivi must have found bags, must have put in their favorite picture books and their most beloved toys, along with photographs and pajamas and coats and shirts. Or maybe Jude had packed for herself. She was never sure. She couldn't imagine how they'd done it with their parents' bodies cooling downstairs. She couldn't imagine how it had felt and as the years go by, she couldn't make herself feel it again. The horror of the murders dulled with time. Her memories of the day blurred. A black horse was nibbling the grass of the lawn when they went outside. Its eyes were big and soft. Jude wanted to throw her arms around its nest, neck and press her wet face into its silky mane. Before she could, the tall man swung her and then Taryn across the saddle, handling them like baggage rather than like, than children. He put Vivi up behind him. Hold on, he said. Jude and her sisters wept the whole way to Fairyland. Chapter 1. That was a (laughs) prologue. In Fairy, there are no fish sticks, no ketchup, no television. Chapter (laughs) 2. I sit on a cushion as an imp braids my hair back from my face. The imp's fingers are long, her nails sharp. I wince. Her black eyes meet mine in the claw-footed mirror on my dressing table. The tournament is still four nights away, the creature says. Her name is Tatterfell, and she's a servant in Maddox's household, stuck here until she works off her debt to him. She's cared for me since I was a child. It was Tatterfell who smeared stinging fairy ointment over my eyes to give me true sight so that I could see through most glamours. who brushed the mud from my boots and who strung dried rowan berries for me to wear around my neck so I might resist in, um, glamours. She wiped my wet nose and reminded me to wear my stockings inside out so I'd never be laid, led astray in the forest. And no matter how eager you are for it, you cannot make the moon set nor rise any faster. Try to bring the glory to the general's household by appearing tonight, by appearing as comely as we can make you. I sigh. She's never had much patience with my peevishness. It's an honor to dance with the High King's court under the hill. The servants are over-fond of telling me how fortunate I am, a bastard daughter of a faithless wife, a human without a drop of fairy blood, to be treated like a true-born child of fairy. Mm-hmm. They tell Tarin, much the same thing. I know it's an honor to be raised along the gentry's own children, a terrifying honor of which I will never be worthy. It would be hard to forget it with all the reminders I am given. Yes, I stay instead, because I say instead, because she is trying to be kind. It's great. Fairies can't lie, so they tend to concentrate on words and ignore tone, especially if they haven't lived among humans. Tatterfell gives me an approving nod, her eyes like two wet beads of jet, neither pupil nor iris visible. Perhaps someone will ask for your hand, and you'll be made a permanent member of the high court. I want to win my place, I tell her. The imposed hairpin in hand, probably considered pricking me with it. Don't be foolish. There's no point in arguing, no point to reminding her of my mother's disastrous marriage. There are two ways for mortals to become permanent subjects of the court, marrying into it or honing some great skill in metallurgy or lute playing or whatever. Not interested in the first, I have to hope I can be talented enough for the second. She finishes braiding my hair into an elaborate style that makes me look as though I have horns. She dresses me in sapphire velvet. None of it disguises what I am, human. I put in three knots for luck, the little fairy says, not unkindly. I sigh as she scurries toward the door, getting up from my dressing table to sprawl face down on my tapestry-covered bed. I'm used to having servants attend me, imps and hobs, goblins and grigs, gossamer wings and green nails, horns and fangs. I have been in fairy for ten years. None of it seems all that strange anymore. Here I am the strange one with my blunt fingers, round ears, and mayfly life. Ten years is a long time for a human. After Maddox stole us from the human world, he brought us to his estates on Innsmire, the Isle of Might, where the High King of Elfheim keeps his stronghold. There Maddox raised us, me and Vivian and Taryn, out of an obligation of honor. Even though Tyron and I are eb- the evidence of Mom's betrayal by the customs of fairy, for his wife ki- we're his wife's kids, so we're his problem. As the High King's general, Maddock was often away fighting for the crown. We were well cared for nonetheless. We slept on mattresses stuffed with the soft seed heads of dandelions. Maddock personally instructed us in the art of fighting with the cutlass and the dagger, the falchion and our fists. He played nine men's Morris, Fitchell, and Foxy geese with us before a fire. He let us sit on his knee and eat off his plate. Many nights I drifted off to sleep to his rumbling voice, reading from a book of battle strategy. And despite myself, despite what he'd done and what he was, I came to love him. I do love him. It's just not a comfortable kind of love. Nice braids, says, rushing into my room. She's dressed in crimson velvet. Her hair is loose, long chestnut curls that fly behind her like a capelet, a few strands braided with gleaming silver thread, she hops into the bed beside me, disarranging my small pile of threadbare threadbare stuffed animals, a koala, a snake, and a black cat, all beloved of my seven-year-old self. I cannot bear to throw out any of my relics. I sit up to take a self-conscious look in the mirror. I like them. I'm having a premonition, Taryn says, surprising me. We're going to have fun tonight. Fun? I've been imagining myself frowning at the crowd from our usual bolt hole and worrying over whether I'd do well well enough in the tournament to impress one of the royal family into granting me knighthood. Just thinking about it makes me fidgety, yet I think about it constantly. My thumb brushes over the missing tip of my ring finger, my nervous tick. Yes, she says, poking me in the side. Hey, ow, I scoot out of range. What exactly does this plan entail? Mostly when we go to court, we hide ourselves away. We watch some very interesting things, but from a distance, she throws up her hands. What do you mean? What does fun entail? It's fun. I laugh a little nervously. You have no idea there. You have no idea either, do you? Fine. Let's go see if you have a gift for prophecy. She pushes herself off my bed and holds out her arm, as though she is my escort for a dance. I allow myself to be guided from the room. My hand going automatically to assure myself that my knife is strapped to my hip. The interior of Maddox's house is whitewashed plaster and massive, rough-cut wooden beams. The glass panes in the windows are stained gray as trapped smoke, making the light strange. As Taryn and I go down the spiral stairs, I spot Vivi hiding in a little balcony, frowning over a comic zine stolen from the human world. Vivi grins at me. She's in jeans and a billowy shirt, obviously not intending to go to the rebel, being Maddox's legitimate daughter, she feels no pressure to please him. She does what she likes, including reading magazines that might have iron staples rather than glue binding their pages, not caring if her fingers get singed. Heading somewhere? she asked softly from the shadows, startling Taryn. Vivi knows perfectly well where we're heading. When we first came here, Taryn and Vivi and I would huddle in Vivi's big bed and talk about what we remembered from home. we talk about the meals Mom burned and the popcorn Dad made our next door neighbor's names, the way the house smelled, what school was like, the holidays, the taste of icing on birthday cakes. We'd talk about the shows we'd watch, rehashing the plots, recalling the dialogue until all our memories were polished smooth and false. There's no more huddling in bed now, rehashing anything. All our new memories are of here, and Vivi has only a passing interest in those. She'd vowed to hate Maddock and she stuck to her vow. When Vivi wasn't reminiscing about home, she was a terror, She broke things, she screamed and raged and pinched us when we were content. Eventually she stopped all of it, but I believe there is a part of her that hates us for adapting, for making the best of things, for making this our home. You should come, I tell her. Taryn's in a weird mood. Vivi gives her a speculative look and then shakes her head. I've got other plans. Which might mean she's going to sneak over to the mortal world for the evening, or it might mean she's going to spend it on the balcony, reading. Either way, if it annoys Maddox, it pleases Vivi. He's waiting for us in the hall with his second wife, Oriana. Her skin is the bluish color of skim milk and her hair is as white as fresh fallen snow. is beautiful but unnerving to look at like a ghost. Tonight she's wearing green and gold, a mossy dress with an elaborate shining collar that makes the pink of her mouth, her ears and her eyes stand out. Maddock is dressed in green too, the color of deep forests. The sword at his hip is no ornament. Outside, past the open double doors, the hob a hob waits, holding the silver bridles of five dappled fairy steeds, their manes braided in complicated and probably magical knots. I think of the knots in my hair and wonder how similar they are. You both look well, Maddox says to Tarrant and me. The warmth in his tone making the words a rare compliment. His gaze goes to the stairs. Is your sister on her way? I don't know where the V is. I lie. Lying is so easy here. I can do it all day and never get caught. She must have forgotten. Disappointment passes over Maddox's face, but not surprised. He heads outside to say something to the hob holding the reins. Nearby, I see one of his spies, a wrinkled creature with a nose like a parsnip and a back hunched higher than her head. She slips a note into his hand and darts off with surprising nimbleness. Oriana looks us over carefully as though she expects to find something amiss with our appearance. Be careful tonight, Oriana says. Promise me you will neither eat nor drink nor dance. We've been to court before, I remind her. A fairy, non-answer if ever there was one. You may think salt is sufficient protection, but you children are forgetful. Better, better to go without. As for dancing, once begun, your mortals will dance yourself to death if you don't prevent it. I look at my feet and say nothing. We children are not forgetful. Maddock married her seven years ago, and shortly after, she gave him a child, a sickly boy named Oak, with tiny, adorable horns on his head. It has always been clear that Oriana puts up with me and Taryn only for Maddock's sake. She seems to think of us as her husband's favored hounds, poorly trained and likely to turn on our master at any moment. Oak thinks of us as sisters, which I can tell makes Oriana nervous, even though I would never do anything to hurt him. You are under Maddox's protection, and he has the favor of the High King, Oriana says. I will not see Maddox made to look foolish because of your mistakes. With that little speech complete, she walks out toward the horses. One snorts and strikes the ground with a hoof. Taran and I share a look and then follow her. Maddox is already seated on one of the largest of the fairy steeds, an impressive creature with a scar beneath one eye. Its nostrils flare with impatience. It It tosses its mane restlessly. I swing up onto a pale green horse with sharp teeth, and a swampy odor. Taryn chooses a roundsey and kicks her heels against its flanks. She takes off like a shot, and I follow, plunging into the night. <laughs> <laughs> That's the cruel prince. The cruel prince. Cruel. Mean.
0: Cruel.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
3: You both. Thanks, everyone. Hang out if you like. You don't have to leave yet. And if those books are here, buy them. Buy those, get rid of those books. Buy those
0: books. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Lindzer for providing the audio, and Rajan that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month!